This is a continuation of The Face of Imperialism by Michael Parenti. Chapter 3 Why Rulers Seek Global Dominion. How do we divine the motives of U.S. leaders when they intervene in other countries? There is no shortage of lamenting about all the terrible and difficult situations that U.S. leaders get into around the world, a lamentation made all the more pathetic for being unaccompanied by any critical analysis of the interests being served by such involvements. Determining Intent Human motives are impossible to observe in any empirical way. We can view behavior and listen to utterances, but we cannot directly observe the actual intent that is attributed to such things. No one has ever seen a motive as such. Intent can only be inferred or imputed. While people profess all sorts of intentions, they are also capable of outrageous deception, including self-deception. How then can we determine, or dare presume, what might be their actual motives? The problem becomes crucial when dealing with political leaders, many of whom make it difficult to divine the intentions behind their actions. Some of us maintain that the overriding purpose of global interventionism is to promote the interests of transnational corporations and make the world safe for global free market capitalism and imperialism. As noted earlier, imperialism is what empires do. It is the process whereby the rulers of one country use economic and military power to expropriate the land, labor, markets, and natural resources of less powerful countries on behalf of wealthy interests at home and abroad. Washington policymakers are the last to admit that they engage in such a process. They claim that their interventions abroad are propelled by an intent to defend our national security or other unspecified U.S. interests for the intent is to fight terrorism, protect human rights, oppose tyranny, prevent genocide, bring democracy to other peoples, maintain peace and stability in various regions, and protect weaker nations from aggressors. Are we to accept these noble claims at face value? If not, how can we demonstrate that they are often false and that the motive we critics ascribe is the real agenda? How can we determine intent if intent is not readily susceptible to direct observation and policymakers can make claim to almost any noble motivation? How can we determine that interventionism is engendered by imperialist concerns rather than, say, humanitarian and democratic ones? First of all, we can look for patterns of intervention. Are there any consistencies in U.S. overseas intercessions? If so, what kinds of governments and political movements do U.S. leaders support? What kinds do they oppose and wish to subject to regime change? And what political economic goals do they pursue when intervening? Rather than characterizing U.S. policy as befuddled and contradictory, we observe that it is remarkably consistent in services rendered on behalf of transnational economic domination. Other policy considerations do come into play during times of intervention, but there's no reason to treat them as mutually exclusive of global business interests, and no reason to ignore the latter. Bolstering the right-wing autocrats The motives of the U.S. national security state can be revealed in part 
by noting whom it supports and whom it attacks. By the U.S. National Security State, I mean the Executive Office of the White House, the National Security Council, NSC, National Security Agency, Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, and other such units that are engaged in surveillance, suppression, covert action, and forceful interventions abroad and at home. Also included are the various monitoring committees set up by the NSC, composed of top players from the Department of State and Department of Defense, the Pentagon, the CIA, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the White House. The efforts of these highly placed government bodies are supplemented by ostensibly non-governmental groups such as the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Conference, the Bohemian Grove, and other formal and informal elite groups populated by political leaders, policy specialists, bankers, CEOs, big investors, leading publicists, and a sprinkling of academic acolytes. The Americans among them are the individuals who inhabit the upper circles of U.S. power, who become the Secretaries of State, Defense, Treasury, Commerce, and heads of the CIA and the National Security Council, in that revolving door between Washington and Wall Street. These U.S. leaders have consistently supported rightist regimes and organizations, and opposed leftist ones. The terms right and left are frequently bandied about, but seldom specifically defined by policymakers or media commentators, and with good reason. The power of a label is in its being left undefined, allowing it to have an abstracted built-in demonizing impact that precludes rational examination of its political content. To explicate the actual political economic content of leftist governments and movements is to reveal their egalitarian and usually democratic goals, making it much harder to demonize them. The left, as I would define it, encompasses those individuals, organizations, and governments that advocate egalitarian, redistributive policies and human services benefiting the common people and infringing upon the privileged interests of the wealthy property classes. The right is also involved in redistributive politics, but the distribution goes the other way, in an upward direction, advancing the privileges of private capital and the wealthy few. Rightist governments and groups, including fascist ones, are dedicated to using the labor, markets, and natural resources of countries as so much fodder for the enrichment of the owning classes. In almost every country, including our own, rightist groups, parties, or governments advocate privatization and deregulation of the economy, along with tax and spending programs, wage and investment practices, and methods of police and military control that primarily benefit those who receive the bulk of their income from investments and property at the expense of those who live off wages, salaries, fees, and pensions. This is what usually distinguishes the right from the left. In just about each instance, rightist forces abroad are deemed by U.S. opinion makers to be friendly to the West, a coded term for pro-free market and pro-capitalist. Conversely, leftist ones are labeled as hostile, anti-democratic, anti-American, and anti-West, when in fact they are anti-corporate capital and against the privileges of the super-rich. While claiming to be motivated by a dedication to human rights and democracy, U.S. leaders have supported some of the most notorious right-wing autocracies in history, regimes that have pursued policies favoring wealthy transnational corporations at the expense of local producers and working people, regimes that have tortured, killed, or otherwise maltreated large numbers of their more resistant citizens, as in 
at one time or another. Chad, Pakistan, Turkey, Indonesia, Honduras, Peru, Colombia, Argentina, El Salvador, Guatemala, Haiti, the Philippines, Chile, under Pinochet, Cuba, under Batista, Congo slash Zaire, under Mobutu, Nicaragua, under Somoza, Iran, under the Shah, Iraq, under Saddam Hussein until 1990, Morocco, under King Hassan, and Portugal, under Salazar, to offer an incomplete listing. U.S. imperialists have assisted counter-revolutionary insurgencies that have perpetrated brutal bloodletting against civilian populations. For example, UNITA in Angola, Renamo in Mozambique, the Contras in Nicaragua, the Khmer Rouge in the 1980s in Cambodia, the Mujahideen and then the Taliban in Afghanistan in the 1980s and 1990s against the Soviet-supported reformist government, and in 1999 to 2000, the drug-dealing Albanian Kosovo Liberation Army in Yugoslavia, originally deemed a terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department. All this is a matter of public records, although it is seldom, if ever, reported in the U.S. media. Support for rightists extends to Nazism itself. After World War II, U.S. leaders and their Western capitalist allies did little to eradicate fascism from Europe, except for putting some of the top Nazi leaders on trial at Nuremberg. In short time, many former Nazis and their active collaborators were back in the saddle in Germany. Hundreds of Nazi war criminals found a haven in the United States, either living in comfortable anonymity or employed by U.S. intelligence agencies during the Cold War. In France, too, very few Vichy collaborators were purged. No one of any rank was seriously punished for his or her role in the roundup and deportation of Jews to Nazi camps. U.S. military authorities also restored fascist collaborators to power in various Far East nations. In South Korea, for instance, police trained by the fascist Japanese occupation force were used immediately after the war to suppress left democratic forces. The South Korean army was commanded by officers who had served, proudly, in the Imperial Japanese Army, some of whom had been guilty of horrid war crimes in the Philippines and China. In Italy, within a year after the war, almost all Italian fascists were released from prison, while hundreds of communists and other leftist partisans who had been valiantly fighting the Nazi occupation were incarcerated. Allied authorities initiated most of these measures. From 1945 to 1975, U.S. government agencies gave an estimated $75 million to right-wing organizations in Italy, including some with close ties to the neo-fascist Movimento Sociale Italiano MSI. Suppressing the Leftist Rebels and Reformers When trying to determine the intentions of policymakers, we should look not only at whom they support, but whom they attack. U.S. rulers have targeted just about all leftist governments, parties, leaders, political movements, and popular insurgencies. That is, any political entity that attempts to initiate equitable reforms, egalitarian programs for the common people, restraints on corporate capital, and self-development for their own countries. Consider once more the parliamentary social democracies in Italy and Western Europe. From 1969 to 1974, High-ranking elements in Italian military and civilian intelligence agencies, along with various secret and highly placed neo-fascist groups, embarked upon a campaign of terror and sabotage known as the Strategy of Tension. 
involving a series of kidnappings, assassinations, and bombings, Istraji, including the explosion that massacred 85 people and wounded some 200 in the Bologna train station in August 1980. Fueled by international security agencies, including the CIA, the terrorism was directed against the growing popularity of the democratic parliamentary left. The objective was to combat by any means necessary the electoral gains of the Italian Communist Party and create enough terror to destabilize the multi-party social democracy and replace it with an authoritarian presidential republic, or in any case, a stronger and more stable executive. Deeply implicated in this terrorist campaign, the CIA refused to cooperate with an Italian parliamentary commission investigating Istraji in 1995. In the 1980s, scores of leftists were murdered in Germany, Belgium, and elsewhere in Eastern Europe by extreme rightists in the service of state security agencies. As with the strategy of tension in Italy, the US corporate-owned media largely ignored these acts of right-wing terrorism while giving prominent play to tiny and far less effective left terrorist grouplets found in Italy and West Germany. In Italy, as long as the Communist Party retained imposing strength in Parliament and within labor unions, US policymakers worked with centrist alternatives, such as the Christian Democrats and the anti-communist Italian Socialist Party. With communism in decline by the 1990s, US leaders began to lend more open encouragement to extreme rightist forces. In 1994, and again in 2001, National elections were won by the National Alliance, a coalition of neo-fascists, ultra-conservatives, and northern separatists headed by ultra-rightist media tycoon Silvio Berlusconi. The National Alliance played on resentments regarding unemployment, taxes, and immigration. It attempted to convince people that government was the enemy, especially in its social service sector, as do reactionary elements in the Republican Party in the United States, all the while preaching the virtues of the free market and pursuing tax and spending measures that redistributed income upward. US leaders and mainstream media have not had a harsh word to say about these Italian crypto-fascists. The methods of domination employed by the US Imperium to subvert and defeat reformist and leftist governments are as varied and ruthless as the opportunities of intervention may allow. Here is an incomplete listing. Bribe and penetrate a government's internal security units and intelligence agencies, providing them with counterinsurgency training and technology. Bribe top political and military leaders and other power players, at times giving them a share of the drug trade payoffs in their region. Collude with organized crime in gun running, narcotics trafficking, and special illegal operations. Maintain secret prisons and interrogation centers. Provide instruments of torture, train torturers, and supervise torture sessions. Disrupt and destroy protest groups and other popular organizations that support reform. Organize death squads to assassinate especially effective progressive leaders and organizers. Recruit and finance mercenary armies and paramilitary units to conduct assassinations, disappearances, massacres, and terror bombings. Wage low-intensity warfare, low-scale wars of attrition, that can continue for years, including strikes against soft targets such as schools, clinics, farm cooperatives, public venues, and whole villages. Incite, arm, and finance retrograde ethnic separatists and supremacists who act as a divisive element and rise against the targeted government. Propagate endless waves of false propaganda and move towards monopolizing world media. Buy up or secretly subsidize existing radio and television stations, periodicals and publishing houses, or finance new ones. 
sabotage and suppress dissident media by threat and intimidation, police actions, killing journalists, and destroying media sites, sometimes with aerial attacks as done in Yugoslavia, Bosnia, and Iraq. Secretly subsidize conservative academic research and mainstream political scholarship, promote and finance depoliticized forms of art and literature, provide awards, arrange exhibitions, guest lectures, and teaching opportunities, and free trips abroad designed to bribe, win over, and politically neutralize writers, academics, artists, and journalists from the targeted countries. Undermine the targeted countries' indigenous cultures with U.S. corporate consumer and entertainment products. Secretly finance compliant labor unions to undermine more militant, radical ones. Finance conservative religious proselytizers, lecturers, and various non-governmental organizations. NGOs. Rig elections. Finance and advise collaborationist political parties and candidates while perpetuating disruptive ploys and other dirty tricks against their opponents. Impose crippling embargoes and trade sanctions that damage the living standards of targeted regimes. Draw them into heavy deficit spending and debt peonage to paralyze their development, forcing them to endure austerity programs in order to meet debt payments. Enemies Without End U.S. leaders profess a dedication to democracy. Yet, over the past six decades, democratically elected reformist governments and revolutionary governments and movements, guilty of supporting egalitarian economic programs, have been attacked by their own military forces, secretly infiltrated and funded by the United States, or by US-supported mercenary forces and dirty tricks operatives dedicated to rolling back reforms and opening their countries to foreign corporate investors and private market solutions, such as happened at one time or another in Afghanistan, Angola, Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Cambodia, Chad, Chile, Congo, Cuba, Cyprus, Dominican Republic, East Timor, Ecuador, Egypt, Ethiopia, Fiji Islands, Greece, twice, Guatemala, Guyana, Haiti, twice, Honduras, Indonesia, under Sukarno, Iran, Jamaica, Lebanon, Libya, Mozambique, Nicaragua, Peru, Portugal, South Yemen, Syria, Thailand, Uruguay, Western Sahara, and others. Since World War II, U.S. military forces have invaded or launched aerial assaults against Afghanistan, Cambodia, Dominican Republic, Grenada, Iraq, twice, Laos, Lebanon, Libya, North Korea, Panama, Somalia, Vietnam, Pakistan, and Yugoslavia, a record of military aggression unmatched by any communist or terrorist government in history. All these listings are incomplete. In some instances, neo-imperialism has been replaced with an old-fashioned direct colonialist occupation, or attempted occupation, as in Bosnia, Kosovo, Macedonia, and for more than a century, Puerto Rico, and more recently, Iraq and Afghanistan. Even before World War II, the U.S. Imperium was engaged in violent interventions. The U.S. military forces waged a bloody war of attrition in the Philippines from 1898 to 1903. U.S. expeditionary forces fought in China along with other Western armies to suppress the Boxer Rebellion and to keep the Chinese under the heel of European and North American colonialists. Along with over a dozen other capitalist nations, the United States invaded revolutionary Russia from 1918 to 1921. U.S. Marines invaded and occupied Nicaragua in 1912 and again in 1926 to 1933, Cuba 1898 to 1902, Mexico, 1914 and 1916, Panama, 1903 to 1914, 
1934, and Honduras six times between 1911 and 1925. Governments that strive for any kind of economic independence, or apply some significant portion of their budgets to public sector, not-for-profit services that might benefit the people and bring self-development, are the ones most likely to feel the wrath of US intervention. The designated enemy can be a populist military government, as in Panama under Omar Torrijos, and even under Manuel Noriega, Egypt under Gamal Abdul Nasser, Peru under Juan Velasco, Portugal under the MFA, leftist military officers, and Venezuela under Hugo Chavez, the latter democratically elected president several times. A Christian socialist government, as in Nicaragua under the Sandinistas, democratically elected after the revolutionary overthrow of the Somoza dictatorship. A social democracy, as in Chile under Salvador Allende, Jamaica under Michael Manley, Greece under Andreas Papandreou, Cyprus under Mihail Makarios, and the Dominican Republic under Juan Bosch. An anti-colonialist radical reform government, as in the Congo under the democratically elected Patrice Lumumba. A Marxist-Leninist government, as in Cuba, Vietnam, and North Korea. An Islamic revolutionary order, as in Libya under Muammar al-Gaddafi. A conservative Islamic government that maintains some economic nationalism and minimal populist organs as in Iran under Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, or even a conservative militarist regime as in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, should it maintain an independent course on oil quotas and a state-owned economy. In sum, we can determine the motives that impel US leaders by observing the following. Just about all the countries designated as friendly to the United States are regimes that maintain economic systems integrated into the US sphere of corporate global domination. Just about all the countries designated as unfriendly have at one time or another resisted being drawn into the US sphere of corporate domination. US supported military and paramilitary forces, death squads, and police have been repeatedly used to destroy reformist movements, labor unions, peasant organizations, and popular insurgencies that advocate some kind of an egalitarian redistributive politics in both the unfriendly countries and, when necessary, the friendly ones as well. Our political and corporate leaders repeatedly tell us that the world is a relentlessly hostile place. They see enemies everywhere largely because their own imperial interests put them in conflict with so many. About half a century ago, the celebrated conservative military figure, General Douglas MacArthur, had this to say about those who profess to guard our ramparts. Our country is now geared to an arms economy, which was bred in an artificially induced psychosis of war hysteria and nurtured upon an incessant propaganda of fear. For the global interventionists to ensure the blessings of an untrammeled free market corporate paradise, they must maintain plutocratic control of the planet. To accomplish this, they must rally public opinion behind them through patriotic pride and fear of alien dangers. Once the people fear for their survival, they are ready to hand over their tax dollars and even their democratic rights to their rulers who are presumed to know best. Thus concludes Chapter 3. We will resume in the next menagerie with Chapter 4, titled Deliberate Design. Reminder that you can get the menagerie before the rest of the world for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash epicincredulity. And for now, comrades, enjoy 
Ihr Ipak.